0: Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode we speak with Jay Sirkar, author of the new paperback and open access ebook, book Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War. Jay Sirkar is Senior Lecturer in Economic and Social History at the University of Glasgow and the founding director of the Global Decolonization Initiative. We spoke to Jay about how the history of India's first nuclear weapons test in 1974 has been overshadowed by their 1998 nuclear tests, why the conventional wisdom that India started off its nuclear program with nuclear energy first is, in fact, incorrect, and the strong connections between India's nuclear program and their space program. Hello, Jay. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, we're excited to talk about your new book, Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War. Tell us what was the backstory to this book? What inspired you to write this book?
1: Yeah, this book was um, inspired by real world events that I experienced uh, while growing up in India in the 1990s. Um, Back in uh, 1998, when I was a teenager, uh, I remember being caught completely by surprise by the 11 nuclear tests in South Asia that took place in the same month. Um, Five by India, six by Pakistan. And I remember there was even a celebration, uh, a very celebratory mood in the country, celebrating the supposed moment when India got its nuclear weapons. But It was only when my grandpa, to whom I have dedicated this book, mentioned to me in passing that, actually, there was a nuclear test back in the 1970s, but that was peaceful. You know, (laughs) it was only then that I realized that there was an important backstory to what we were witnessing in 1998, and yet, no one seemed to be entirely sure what that backstory was. Um, soon after, there were several books that were published uh, and that focused heavily on 1998, completely ignoring the, 74, the 1974 nuclear explosion. So in graduate school, when I had some time to, you know, choose a dissertation topic, I picked one that was essentially going to meet three conditions, which I think are important for completing a book and a PhD. And um, I'm completing a PhD and <laughs> a book, um, and that is, uh, it has to keep me up at night get me out of bed, and then repeat it for at least a decade. <laughs> and so here we are uh, with, the, with the book now.
0: Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, it, it, what you just, the, the story you just told us, uh, it shows the power of propaganda or, re, or framing the story. <laughs> yeah. that the, the majority of people saying, oh yeah, this, this explosion, this nuclear test in 1974 was peaceful, a, new, a peaceful nuclear explosion shows the power of words. So yeah, so the conventional wisdom, not only in India, but around the world, was that India's nuclear program started out peacefully and it was focusing on nuclear power. And then, as as with other countries, it moved more into a weapons phase. But your deep research definitely shows that that is not true. Tell us about your research and what you found.
1: Um, The conventional wisdom, you're absolutely right, divides India's nuclear program into distinct peaceful and military phases. Uh, So the peaceful phase is said to have started in 1947, when India became an independent country, all the way until the 1980s. And the so-called weaponization phase is said to have started in the 1980s in response to Pakistan's nuclear weapons program, and then consolidated after the 1998 nuclear test that I just mentioned. Now, what this received wisdom has done is that it has transformed the formative years of India's nuclear program, so the 1940s to the 1980s, as essentially a prehistory of the nuclear weapons project. So what I do in my book is that I challenge that conventional wisdom by showing how the choices made from the 40s to the 80s were pivotal for what followed in the 1990s and thereafter and so i make three main arguments in the book the first is very briefly is that india's nuclear program was a dual use endeavor simultaneously serving the civilian and military ends not because of the nature of nuclear technologies but because of deliberate plans and decisions undertaken by the atomic energy commission of india and later on the department of atomic energy and so I, I argue with historical evidence that the nuclear energy program did not develop into a weapons program over time, but it was conceived as both from the onset. And so here, I'd like to draw the listener's attention to the title of the book. You know, It is not a story of plowshares to swords, but um, it's plowshares and swords uh, from the onset. The second, um, Uh, argument is about the space program, and that is the leaders of India's nuclear program pursued a deliberate uh, dual-use space program, and they kept the research for space separate from the nuclear program and the defense laboratories. Whether the space program was led by Homi Pava, Rikram Sarabhai, Satish Tawan, they essentially kept space separate from nuclear at the same time, they were, they were also entangled, the two programs, I mean. And why did they do that? They did that to benefit from foreign cooperation in outer space without arousing suspicion of the global non-proliferation regime. And the third and final argument, and it's related to the conventional wisdom that you start your question with, the third and final argument is about borders and uh, and, and, the, and the significance of understanding the, the importance of uh, borderlands. And so I argue that India's nuclear programs geopolitical aspects were evident in the intermestic nature of territorial threats and their entanglements of the entanglements with the Cold War. And so here I use uh, uh, Frederick Logabal and Campbell Craig's uh, important work on the intermestic, uh, meaning the interface between international and domestic. And so I argue that securing these borderlands mattered to the post-colonial Indian nation state just as much as protecting the borders itself. Um, And Indian policymakers were responding to these threats. As they were doing that, we can get a clear sense of the geopolitical dimensions of the nuclear program uh, and what that meant to the policymakers. Because as we think about the implication of the conventional wisdom, it is that the first 40 years were peaceful, and as a result, the key motivations were prestige and or domestic politics. So what I argue is it's not the case, the leaders of India's nuclear program were pursuing weapons and energy from the onset, and that geopolitics was a key motivation, not the only one, I do say that, not the only one, but a significant one during this time period and we can get a clearer sense of that by expanding our understanding and paying attention to inter and not just interstate wars.
0: Interesting, interesting. Going, thank you. Uh, going back to, <laughs> uh, you made, made many points, but one of the points you made that I thought was really very smart and strategic was this dual track: not only peaceful and, uh, you know, uh, more warfare oriented, but the whole two two-tier track of the space program. Where they could ask for international assistance, and then, oh yes, this is for the space program. But in reality, they could they can integrate that into the nuclear program. So, so this this program that develops since the '40s. Who who were these who were these countries and non-state suppliers that were helping India, both in the space program but also with the nuclear program itself? Yeah, these
1: suppliers um, were of various types, frankly. Um, These suppliers range from uh, foreign atomic energy commissions, private companies, public companies, and science societies, to just name a few types of suppliers. And and they were located in North America, uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the Soviet Union. So Some of the major um, foreign Atomic Energy Commissions were the French, the FEOA, the Commissariat on Energy Atomique, uh, the UK Atomic Energy Authority, the Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, which is the, the, the company that actually exports, uh, but it's you know close to the Canadian government, and the US Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, on the Soviet side, the Soviet Academy of Sciences were also, was also an important partner of India's nuclear program. And what I found in my research is that uh, The leaders of the nuclear program really adopted this strategy of hyper-diversification through these foreign partnerships. And what they were trying to do is that they were trying to get multiple types of research and power reactors. So power reactors would produce electricity. Research would help them to gather know-how so that they can become independent over time, independent of foreign support. Uh, So multiple types of research and power reactors, plutonium reprocessing designs, uh, heavy water plants and others and they were very innovative you know you rightly point out it's very strategic you know very well thought out um, uh, uh, approach to getting technology and know-how they're very innovative in their quest of suppliers and um, I know we, we, this is going to be a short uh, interview, but I'll quickly share this fascinating early episode of foreign cooperation, if that's okay. In late 1948, um, SS Bhatnagar, one of the founding members of the Atomic Energy Commission of India, visited East Berlin uh, to meet former personnel of our Gesellschaft, which was this company involved in the Nazi nuclear weapons program. And what he was trying to do is that he was trying to know uh, what could be procured or learned from that German company. And he reported back to Homi Bhavad, who was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission of India and the prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, who had always taken a keen interest in nuclear program in general. Um, I do find that in the end, uh, the Indian Atomic Energy Commission signed a contract with the French company SDR, or Societe de Produit Chimique de Terra, which is the full name. And the French company itself was closely linked to our gasol shop during the Second World War, but it did not have a very evident Nazi heritage. Um, and at the end, SDR was the first partner of India's nuclear program. So you can tell how, how India's the leaders of India's nuclear program from the very beginning are just you know, spread their web far and wide and very, very innovative in trying to develop foreign partnerships.
0: Wow, wow. So, so <laughs> I love history because it, I mean, first of all, it's so fascinating, but secondly, it allows us to see the present more clearly. So with that, with that in mind, knowing what you now know and knowing through the, the deep dive of research that you've done for this book, how, what, what are some of the, what are some of the things that you follow in the news now that are informed by your research?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that I, I find in my through the research in my book is that, you know, India's relationship with the global non-proliferation regime is, is very, stable in the sense that India is opposed to it, just like it was during the time period of my research. And the arguments as to why India is opposed to it and shall remain in the future going forward, um, are essentially the same that were given in the 1960s. It was the same set of arguments provided during the 1998 nuclear tests, uh, same set of arguments in 2008 during the US-India Civil Nuclear Agreement. Um, so I find that, that, that um, uh, India's nuclear program you know, has, has a set of milestones as opposed to breaks or, or, or specific, um, specific uh, turning points. Obviously, there was an explosion in seventy-four, and then five nuclear weapon tests in 1998. I would consider them a set of milestones in, in this long process. And I don't see a lot of change in the present time. I see more continuity. Um, and um, in the context of the 21st century, I would say India's nuclear program is still very much dual use. Um, one of the things that India was expected to do because of the 2008 U.S.-India civil nuclear agreement was separate Civilian and military facilities, which to an extent it did, but not fully. Uh, so, from a non-proliferation perspective, you know, f- folks in Vienna or Washington D.C. looking at India's nuclear program, they still consider the whole nuclear enterprise of India as you know very confusing, ambiguous, uh, very difficult to access, and uh, and India has maintained a rather uh, similar position of opposition to the regime on the basis of sovereignty and. Um, it's uh, it's it's belief that the regime is functions on nuclear apartheid. That's what Indian policymakers have said throughout the sixties, in some ways, till today.
0: Okay, okay. And moving to the nuclear energy side of the equation, some proponents of nuclear energy are saying this is this is the way we need to move forward to address global warming and climate change. What's, what do you, what is India's stance on that? Are, are they moving forward in building more ge- uh, generators and reactors or are they staying still? What, what's their current policy when it, in regards to nuclear energy?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great, great question. Um, here, I would say that, and I just mentioned the 2008 uh, Civil Nuclear Agreement. Now, that agreement was in the context of this, uh, this belief in a, in, a, in a potential nuclear renaissance in the world, um, that uh, finally, because of climate change, countries will find nuclear energy to be the response, and they will expand, um, or they will try to build more reactors. So India uh, definitely made several commitments to that effect. In in, in 2008, uh, Fukushima put a wrench, not just in India's plans, but in the global nuclear industry's plans uh, to expand. And now in 2022, as our... I mean, as a historian, that yeah, I wouldn't count myself there, or I wouldn't count you because you're you you would talk to historians all the time. Uh, but we we tend to forget the effects of Fukushima, and we are, and so I'm seeing a lot of uh, discussion of, of a nuclear renaissance again in the context of 2022 and that expansion of nuclear energy production. Um, and so India very much has uh, the current government has recommitted to. Uh, building more reactors and you know uh, putting more emphasis on nuclear energy again in the 2020s. They had done that in 2005 2008 with Fukushima putting a wrench in 2011. I think those calls and those commitments are back again on the agenda.
0: Great, right, great. Right. Wow, well, you are welcome <laughs> and uh, we're so grateful and proud to be publishing your book and we thank you for all the hard work and research that you've done uh, and put into this book. Uh, your new book, Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War. Thank you so much, Jay.
1: Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's a delight to be on the podcast.
0: That was Jay Surkar, author of the new paperback and open access ebook, Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War. Follow Jay on Twitter at Dr. Jay Surkar. If you'd like to read Jay's new book right now, Download the free open access ebook on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. You can also use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on the new paperback. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast.